BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. This is episode number 96. We're talking about that immunity, baby. Dr. Baraki, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on, man? Nothing, man. Hanging out, doing good. <laughs> I, yeah. I just feel like this COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the forefront some annoyances that we have in the strength and conditioning community. Thoughts? Uh, totally agree. I mean, we've seen claims about uh, claims about various diets that should or shouldn't be followed, uh, supplements that shouldn't or shouldn't be used. Um, even I saw a even, supplement guide. It yeah. was eighty eighty dollars. <laughs> and then to, uh, for what supplements you should take during <laughs> to avoid or uh, to avoid getting, and then if you do get it uh to survive covid-19. Right. Yeah, not to mention the 200% immunity boost you can get from a chiropractic manipulation that has set all of us including Mike <laughs> off on this topic as well. So yeah, lots of lots of uh, bad stuff going on out there. Listen, if you could just get a chiropractic adjustment and be marked safe from covid-19, I mean, I think the stimulus package would just be trillions of dollars to the American Chiropractic Association. So people would just go out and right, start yeah. getting that, uh, that adjustment. So, um, okay. This podcast, as I alluded to earlier in my best Barry White voice, is all about immunity. We're going to tackle the common claim that people make that exercise, particularly of the high intensity of variety, compromises the immune system and increases susceptibility to an infection. You might have heard this on mainstream uh, the mainstream news outlets or read it on your favorite uh, blog or seen it on a vlog or wherever you get your information from, Twitter. People are saying, hey, don't exercise. Don't go too hard because you might make yourself more susceptible to an infection. Well, look, we're here to bring you the truth as best as we understand it, based on the current evidence. And uh, we're going to get to the bottom of this. So 
I think even Austin, wasn't there a mil, there was an article uh, or like a military order for like certain branches of the military, certain uh, levels uh, of soldiers to like stop doing high intensity like training because they thought that might be more susceptible to infections. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. It was shared in our group. And this is, I mean, just a reflection of how prevalent this idea is. It's, it's super common. We had numerous, I think we had three or four different posts in our forum, just in, a, in our Q and a, just in a matter of like a couple of days asking about, you know, should I keep training? Should I train hard? Should I not, you know, uh, just out of concern for their immune function, people suddenly have, you know, the, the, the immune system that we normally take for granted, <laughs> uh, uh, throughout our, uh, our whole lives now is of, of great concern as far as what people can do to optimize its function. Yeah. How do you boost it? How right. do you like prop it up? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is a, yeah, that definitely a topic that is, uh, uh, common concern. And, and personally to me, I mean, it's super interesting to me. I've, it involves a lot of interesting physiology, pathophys. I think I helped teach some uh, immu- immunology stuff back in med school. I'm a hematology nerd. So yeah, I like this topic. This You, you dig it. Uh, dig. J- just for all the listeners at home, Austin's immunity is indeed stronger than mine. Um, we, we haven't done like a one rep max immunity you know, test, <laughs> but I assume that his repeated exposures at the hospital with or without protective personal equipment probably has, he has a wider variety of, Oh, uh, totally. Exposure. <laughs> yes. We haven't done a, a, a one RM, uh, one, one RM oxidative burst between. Not yet. Two. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> so. Not yet. I keep my free radicals to a minimum, bro. All right. <laughs> So, uh, all right, we'll stop getting around here. Let's get into this. Let's actually talk about uh, the immune system and we'll start off with some definitions. So like Austin, if you're trying to explain to a patient like what the immune system is, say they're there for a vaccine or say they're there for an infection, like what do you, what do you tell them? It's, it's basically a, a really complex system that exists to protect us from almost anything that can cause disease, particularly um, things that are, you know, outside of our body, germs, infectious agents, uh, what would we would medically call pathogens, although I wouldn't necessarily use the fancy, uh, fancy words with with patients, but that's kind of the, the idea to get across is it's a complex network of um, a variety of different uh, 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 systems that function to, to detect pathogens, to detect things that are non-self, things that are not our own tissues, and so that we can neutralize them. And the immune system also has functions in, you know, healing our own kind of damaged tissue um, if we're to sustain an injury or something like that. So differentiating self from non-self, uh, neutralizing uh, uh, threats, and then taking care of things, cleaning things up, uh, repairing our own tissues are kind of yep. like the hallmarks of what our immune system does among many, many, many other things. <laughs> yes, it's actually, it's even involved in getting jacked. I mean, look, we're using the immune system or elements of it all the time. Um, I think uh, one important distinction is that there are two general branches of the immune system, uh, if you want to categorize it that way. One would be called like the innate immune system, immune system, and the other one would be acquired, the acquired immune system. So the innate system, I'll start off with this and I'll flip it to you for the acquired. Um, these are effectively your first line of defenses. Uh they're nonspecific in general, so they include barriers, so things like skin or different uh, mucosal layers or cellular linings that prevent, you know, non-self things or foreign things from getting inside of you, all right? Uh, they 
uh, again, are nonspecific. They generally function by recognizing abnormal patterns or patterns that are associated with different uh, pathogens or bugs, uh, so to speak. So um, an example of like the innate system at work, um, I was actually just thinking about when I got bit by a dog, uh, my dog as a kid. Yeah. So look, so this is a, a personal story. That's really the only reason people listen to these podcasts, I think, that is to hear me rambling on about my messed up life. Uh, <laughs> my grandma used to have these Rottweilers, like large dogs, which she was like 90 pounds. She had no business having these huge dogs because if they ever like got out of hand, what is she going to do? Nothing. Just yell, smoke some more cigarettes. All right. In any case, I was like four years old, being a four-year-old, you know, little POS, probably antagonizing the dog. And the dog bit me in my face and on my arm. In any case, I had to go to the doctor, get a bunch of antibiotics, got some stitches. And that's why I look the way I look right now. Um, (laughs) But we'll just say that the, you can even use a dog bite um, in this example. So something pierced the skin, broke the barrier, right? And then maybe there was some pathogen that entered uh, either into the uh, tissues underneath, underlying the skin, maybe even into the bloodstream or whatever. And so the idea is that the innate immune system, uh, immune system that's already there, the skin was your first line of defense. All right, that didn't work. That broke down. The second line is you have these uh, white blood cells, immune system, there's cells of the immune system floating around that are basically out to seek and destroy. They recognize again that, hey, this thing is not self. Hey, this thing is a pathogen. We don't know exactly what it is or what to do, but we're going to try to destroy it. And so it does so in like a nonspecific way, causes inflammation. It's relatively bad at this because the it's tar- it's like actions are, again, not specific. It's just like, uh, I don't know, blow it up. And, then, and so you right, get this yeah. inflammatory response. And so it can do so by, you know, uh, uh, like secreting different substances, which again, triggers this inflammatory response. And that's the innate immune system. So in addition to like not letting your young kids antagonize dogs, also that's how your innate immune system works. The acquired immune system is a little bit more, uh, is much more refined and specific. So I'll let Austin take you through the acquired immune system. Yeah. So this is kind of our slower second line defense. It has a lot more specificity. So rather than just, like you said, just blow it up (laughs) because it looks different than what I'm used to seeing. um, This uh, uh, is, is much more specific after you get exposed to something, you kind of, it takes, uh, it takes a bit more time to develop uh, uh, the recognition capabilities and immune response to that. But once it's there, uh, this is a situation where you end up with uh, longer lasting kind of immunological memory so that if you are to get exposed to something again, that particular thing again in the future, you can mount a much more rapid and robust response very quickly uh, once you've been exposed to it the first time. And so a cl- classic example of this would be immunization. When we expose somebody to a particular antigen, which is one of these patterns that's specific to a particular pathogen or particular uh, uh, infectious agent. And that first uh, kind of exposure uh, teaches your immune system uh, how to recognize it and builds up that memory such so that if you're exposed to it in the future, you generate a much more uh, uh, robust, rapid, and specific immune response to that thing rather than just non-discriminately blowing things up. <laughs> so um, these are both essential. They're highly, highly uh, uh, conserved from an evolutionary standpoint, they're interacting. They, uh, they're both essential. So one is not better than the other. They're both critically important and, and having, uh, you know, when, when these systems go wrong, um, so if you are, are, are absent 
factors from either the innate or the immune uh, or the acquired uh, kind of immune systems, you can have pretty substantial uh, uh, immunodeficiency, which is a situation where you'd be set up for uh, being at risk for a number of infections. So there are various forms of immunodeficiency. One that people might be most common, most familiar with is, is AIDS, which is one, you know, that results from, from HIV infection that's not untreated can uh, uh, result in substantial, you know, pretty uh, life-threatening uh, immune deficiencies. But there are a whole bunch of other ones, including some that are congenital, uh, uh, that uh, can set people up for being at risk for infections from birth. Fortunately, you know, as you can imagine, given how important these immune systems are for our function um, and for uh, dealing with the world around us, uh, most of us uh, luck out and we don't end up with these immunodeficiencies from birth. And we go about the world, like I said before, taking our immune systems for granted, but they are taking care of us constantly 24-7 all day, every day, protecting us uh, from, from all the huge variety of pathogens that are uh, around us all the time. Yeah, it's a good thing you don't have to think about your immune system <laughs> God, to like that would be like awful <laughs> to like focus. You'd be like, uh, I need a little squirt of neutrophils. I feel, I feel like feel yeah. like I need to mount the stress response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, similarly to having this immunodeficiency, so lacking one of the systems where people are at risk for other you know substantial increase in infections, uh, you can actually have too robust of a response or a response to the wrong things. So instead of being able to accurately differentiate between self and non-self, you might react to things that are yourself. That's an, we call that an autoimmune disease uh, or people with hypersensitivity syndromes. So these folks basically have an, a, a, a over response of their immune system to stuff that you normally shouldn't have. So allergies, uh, autoimmune diseases, et cetera. This is all all uh, pertinent to the immune system, which is super complex. I think again, like the first pearl, the first take-home thing is the immune system is extremely complex, and we're still learning a lot about it. Like immunology is a relatively new field, and you know, because of all of the advances in different uh, technologies, we're able to learn more and more about it. You know, again, like very very quickly compared to where we were twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Um, but I want to impress this upon people because it's highly unlikely that somebody without formal training in immunology or the medical field is able to accurately sort of give you good information about the immune system. It yeah, just, it's so complex. I think I've taken probably three different uh, immunology courses over the course of my education. And this is just again, as a topic of interest for me, I read about on it relatively frequently, including the, the hematological side. But um yeah, it's 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 really complex. <laughs> That's I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. So people cannot people are not going to be able to just kind of like casually peruse some of the literature and and get a good handle on this. I mean, as soon as you come across your first uh, you know flow cytometry thing, differentiating a whole bunch of different CD markers on these cells, you're going to go cross-eyed and not be able to follow it anymore. That even happens to me <laughs> uh, reading yeah. this stuff a lot too. So yeah, it's like uh, like like on a RPE, you know, one to ten scale. I put like gut health, you know, <laughs> being a gut expert at like an RPE eight or seven because it's super complex and obviously very. We think it's very important, but we're just not sure like how and like what to do about it. Uh, and, and experts like actual like PhD, MD, PhD combined, you know, experts and researchers are like working viciously to try to like make sense of this thing, right? And then we're starting to like make some headway, but it's just. 
again, the reason why you haven't heard about these like particular protocols or, you know, things to improve your gut health is we just don't know yet. We, d- we think it, we know it's important. We just don't know like what to do about it exactly just yet. That's RPE 8. Immunology is RPE 11. We're, it's like the next level. So just like the person on Instagram who calls himself a gut health expert, the person who like is casually talking about immunology, uh, yeah, probably not. Probably not, unless, you know, they're actually involved in the research in this field or, uh, you know, some sort of clinical role. So, um, yeah, luckily with respect to exercise, which is what we're actually going to talk about and its effect on the immune system, um, we've got some pretty recent and well-written, uh, resources here. The first one that I think probably led to maybe the the motivation to actually do this versus us just like two dudes talking, which was the original format for this, this podcast (laughs) um, is this new article by uh, this article from 2018, the front in the frontiers of immunology journal. Uh, It's from Campbell. It's called debunking the myth of exercise induced immune suppression, uh, redefining the impact of exercise on immunological health across the lifespan. Uh, So this is, I think you found this and sent it to me and I was like, Yes, this is this is actually one of one of my favorite papers that I've read in recent memory, uh, uh, to be honest, and not just due to the topic, um, but because of, you know, how they challenged a lot of the established thinking pretty effectively. I think they have a second uh, editorial that I that I had also uh, pulled up same two authors for people who want to find it. Um, And then there was one other one other uh, paper that I found is actually a book chapter from 2015 titled Exercise and the Regulation of Immune Functions by Simpson and their colleagues. And, uh, and I think just to get a more balanced perspective on this, um, that's kind of where I, I started there and then moved into the Campbell paper second, um, just because, you know, you don't want to uh, uh, anchor too hard on something that <laughs> tells you what you like to hear. So, so uh, I, I went to both, but ultimately, big, big fan of this Campbell paper myself. Yeah, it's excellent. So uh, the first part about this, where did this whole thing start? We introduced this podcast by talking about military, making a recommendation um, to avoid high-intensity workouts, and along with the just prevailing notion that hard exercise, or a particularly hard bout of exercise, is likely to put somebody more at risk, increase the risk of an infection because it causes immunosuppression. Like, where did this thing even come from? Yeah, so we can get into that a little bit. I think it's worth tackling. There are a few different kind of lines of evidence or lines of thinking that have that have led people to this conclusion. So, so the first one is is kind of coming from and the and the the authors of this paper lay it out. There's studies from the 80s and beyond, 80s, 90s, etc., where they looked at a whole bunch of athletes who were participating in large scale running events, and then they would subsequently uh, uh, report or complain of kind of symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection, like common cold type symptoms. Um, and so this led, they, they did some case control setups and they would compare them to people who were participating versus not and, and, and a few other ways of looking at this. Um, and that led to the idea that, hey, maybe these people as a result of this vigorous exercise activity are at increased risk of, of developing uh, infections. And, you know, if, if you're using your brain while I while I said that, you might say, hey, maybe there's a few other things to consider there. So, so a few examples of some of the limitations here is that most of these studies never actually did any testing to confirm these people had an infection. They just based it off of the people's report of some symptoms. Um, and subsequent studies, when they actually did bother to go and do a, a, a viral panel swab, for example, they only detected infection in a tiny fraction 
of individuals who had symptoms, say ranging from 10, 20, 30% of people. Um, and this is just a reflection of the fact that symptoms of these sorts of quote, infections are not specific, meaning they don't always arise due to an infection. Just having allergy type symptoms can result in, you know, congestion, runny nose, you can get some sore throat symptoms, maybe a little cough, um, or, or a bunch of other non-infectious causes as well. Um, similarly, uh, other limitations are like, hey, these people are going to like huge running events with a bunch of other people around, and they're traveling to go there. And, you know, there's, there's tons of potential exposure to infectious agents. And perhaps either that being in the presence of that environment, or other factors that were present, you know, before they actually came to do this race predisposed them uh, to uh, uh, getting infected if they did get infected rather than the actual race or the actual run itself. Yeah. So they're at these, there's at these large events. They probably had to travel. Yeah. They might be across different time zones. The, you know, their number of potential sick contacts has gone up astronomically. Uh, they might be eating different foods that are, you know, they're not used to, sure. uh, for example, from different cuisines, like all sorts of things can possibly change. It's yep. complicated. And then, you know, in addition, people report s- symptoms of like this upper respiratory tract infection relatively commonly anyway. Like when you just, if you called a couple thousand people up and ask them like, Hey, if you have, you have a cold, like a certain percentage of them, that's not really different from the ones the numbers reported here will say, yeah, and especially if you if you get your sample size big enough. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here. It's it's just that confounding this data. But this yeah. was in the 80s and 90s, and so people but people kind of just took this and ran with it. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the authors point out a whole bunch of other epidemiological evidence that's that's arisen since then, although it's much less cited kind of pointing in the other direction where they find lower infection rates in people undertaking the highest amounts of activity or among elite athletes compared to national athletes. And of course, all of it has varying degrees of confounding or selection bias or, or survivorship bias or whatever whatever you want to look at. But the fact that we have a lot of evidence pointing in, in all these different directions should make us question like, is it as simple as, oh, you know, you ran a hard race and you get a you get an infection. Is that is that the driver? Usually things are not as uh, as simple as that. Well, yeah, that's the idea is like those who train the hardest or with the highest volume or had the most intense schedule for training had the highest risk of infection. It's like this J-shaped curve, right? Yeah. And so it's so then by that logic, it would follow that those with the least amount of exercise, least amount of physical activity would have the lowest risk of infection. But that, that we don't we don't find that. We found the exact opposite relationship um, in that on average – uh, the people undertaking the highest amounts of activity or and, and or athletes performing at the highest level tend to have the lowest rates of infection. It's the exact opposite of, of what you see when, when you actually have to verify these folks for uh, some sort of infection um, when they report symptoms. Yeah, so that's one that's one big piece of where uh, some of these ideas started to come from. There, there are a few others. Did you want to tackle the next one? Oh, yeah. With the, on the age related thing. So w- one thing that happens is... Uh, when you get older, one of the age-related changes in your immune system is you, you effectively become a more immunosenescent. So effectively, your immune system doesn't function quite as robustly, quite as well. So you'd expect, if you're comparing a younger person to an older person, the and you wanted to say who's got a more robust immune system, all other things being equal, the more the younger person would in general. So what you'd expect to see is that older athletes, those who are more physically active, would be getting more infections than younger athletes more upper respiratory tract infections, 
but you don't, you see the exact opposite, younger athletes getting more. <laughs> and so it's, yeah. you, you have all this conflicting evidence. And so the initial response to that isn't just to be like, oh, science is stupid. It's all made up. Just, you know, go back to the blogs. Cause I, I can't make sense of this. It's just that the relationship that you're trying to form here is too simple, too simplistic, too reductionist. So you have to expand the model. Um, so the way I interpret this so far based on, you know, like where we're at now is we're leading you through kind of this period of discovery is like, I, I don't know that there is a relationship between training volume as far as it increasing the risk um, in, in, of infection it seems to be potentially, potentially the opposite, but we'll, we'll kind of hammer that home a little later on. Um, the second, the second thing that came out here was uh, about IgA. So IgA is an immunoglobulin. It's found in effectively all fluids of the body. But you take a blood sample, you can get IgA levels. You take a saliva sample, you get IgA samples, whatever. Um, so there's some data suggesting that at people who exercised um, people who, and people who exercise a lot would have less IgA in their saliva than those who didn't exercise a lot or didn't exercise at all. And then the idea would be, see, that's a marker of their immunosuppression after exercise because they have less IgA in their saliva after exercise. A um, couple problems with this, even though there are studies showing that there's less IgA in the saliva. And just you know, for the listeners at home, IgA is one of, it's part of that uh, uh, innate immune system. It's like one of the first lines of defense. It'll like attack something that's not self and say, get out of here, blow it up. Um, one problem with this finding that there's a lack of IgA potentially in the saliva after exercise is that it lacks any correlation to upper respiratory tract infection <laughs> or, or other illness in this case. So it's like, okay, even if the IgA levels were lower, how come the levels of infection aren't higher? All right. So then moving on, the other thing that changes with respect to uh, uh, exercise is that you actually produce a little bit less saliva. So, so effectively, if you're measuring just total amount of IgA and you're not correcting it for the reduced amount of saliva that you're producing, you might get some faulty results. And so, in fact, there's data suggesting that the, the salivary content of IgA concentration is actually not changed during uh, after exercise, meaning that the quality of the saliva, the IgA content, is the same, even though the quantity is actually a little reduced. And there's just crazy amount of changes that occur in IgE levels, salivary uh, production, et cetera, on a day-to-day basis based on circadian rhythm, central nervous system, like autonomic nervous system. So fight or flight, if your sympathetic nervous system is going, if your parasympathetic nervous system is going, did you smell a meal? Is there a donut? Can you see a donut? <laughs> there were even <laughs> some, they even cited some animal, animal studies where they showed like a almost 30 fold variation in salivary IgA levels, like over a short period of time. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, I would just not overinterpret these things because, um, I don't know how meaningful they are. Well, it's the same thing you see in testosterone studies too, when they yep. look at salivary testosterone. Yeah. It's just huge variations and, and then people are just trying to make sense of it. And it's like, it doesn't make sense. There's not, you can't correlate cause it's not correlated to anything that we are clinically trying to look at in this case, infections from IgA and the testosterone's case, like act like performance, muscle mass, uh, you know, erections, like whatever your thing that the clinical entity that you're trying to study, if it doesn't correlate, you'd either need to find a better marker or look for a different clinical correlate that it actually does, you know, uh, uh, matter. But, so uh, that's the case for IgA and uh, and salivary production. But that was another idea. Again, with these studies came out and people were like, see, exercise, just decreasing 
decreasing the immune system's uh, uh, effectiveness post-exercise. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it's super frustrating. <laughs> like when, when you see these kind of interpretations where they jump like so many multiple steps, like it would have been fine if people had been like, well, there's this decrease in IgA and we don't really know the significance of it yet, rather than saying there's this decrease in IgA. So you're probably immunosuppressed after you exercise. It's just... <laughs> I mean, having not read all of the primary literature on this, because we're getting exposed to it almost 20 years later. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, who knows? Maybe the authors did say like, we don't yeah, know what I, this means. Well, responsible scientists would have said it that way. And then people who maybe read it or, or somebody who's, you know, maybe not, uh, the best thinker might take it and run with it. I mean, the same thing happened in this, in this next, uh, this next one that, that we'll talk about. You want me to tell yeah. this one? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so this one has to do with, um, Basically, one significant component of the immune system uh, involve our white blood cells. So people may be familiar with red blood cells and platelets and, and all these different circulating cells that have their own functions. The white blood cells do a lot of things. One big, uh, they're, they're a big part of the uh, immune system. And so we have pretty uh, consistent data showing that during and immediately after a workout, the white blood cell concentrations in our blood go up a lot. And this happens for through a variety of reasons. There's changes in, you know, blood flow during exercise. There's stress responses that can result in white blood cells uh, kind of coming out of hiding from various organs coming out into your bloodstream and, and the concentration in your blood goes up. Now, a couple out within a couple hours after exercise, those levels go down. And in some situations, um, they actually go down below their baseline. So you might have, what? A yeah, you might have a temporarily low white blood cell concentration in your blood after exercise. And this is thought to be intensity dependent. The, the harder you train, the, the more this, uh, level drops below your prior baseline from, from before your exercise bout. And so similar to this question that we just talked about with IgA, this decrease in blood concentrations of these cells raised concern for people being immunosuppressed. They said, oh, my, my white count is, is low. Um, I'm in this open window. So this generated what was called the open window hypothesis for uh, when you could get infected while these cell concentrations are low. Um, and this is similarly kind of erroneous or simplistic thinking to the, to the IgA question above. And this is just because absolute concentrations outside of certain extremes um, don't necessarily reflect levels of, of immune activity. This is because what you're measuring with those levels is just the concentration in the blood, which is kind of one compartment in the body. One of the ways that our white blood cells and immune cells do their thing is actually leaving the bloodstream, leaving our blood cells, going into the tissues to actually do their job. Uh, treating the infection in the t uh, addressing the infection in the tissues or or uh, mediating an inflammatory response in the tissues, et cetera. And any time a cell leaves to go into the tissues, it's no longer in the bloodstream and it will no longer be measured if you draw blood to measure the concentration. So this kind of redistribution of immune cells uh, in the context of exercise has some implications for how you might interpret uh, those changes in blood concentrations around the time of exercise, as well as how you might interpret, you know, apparent cell function if they do certain uh, measures of, of, uh, of, of cell function. And so the more recent or more current hypothesis is that actually exercise rather than having an immune suppressive effect because it decreases these cell concentrations in the blood, it actually seems to have an immune enhancing effect because it 
drives these cells to leave the bloodstream, go out into the tissues and undergo what's called immune surveillance. This means they're kind of surveilling your tissues, particularly in areas that are most likely to experience pathogens like your gut, your GI tract, your lungs, things like that, um, where we get exposed to the most non-self kind of foreign uh, uh, infectious agents and things like that. Um, so they're going out proactively searching for things to take care of, seek and destroy <laughs> Uh, uh, in the context of exercise rather than disappearing and leaving us in an immunosuppressed uh, state. So this is one of the most interesting uh, things to me is that there's this idea that you can actually kind of augment uh, immune activity. You can enhance it by driving more of this uh, immune surveillance uh, by exercising, which is really cool. Yeah. Like it actually improves the immune function, quote unquote. Um, do you think that most hemonc doctors are aware of this and therefore advising their patients on exercise protocols when they need to get their blood test done? Uh, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> um, I think that there's a ton of interesting implications, both both in well, both in the context of of hematology and oncology, but also in other in other contexts. Um, and so this kind of yeah. leads into some of these next points. Yeah, well, I think the the first thing I want to say is the this sort of window open window hypothesis. It, that's not a it's not unique, I guess, to just this idea of, that your immune system, for, for example, might be suppressed after exercise. This is a general sort of concept in exercise physiology that refers to this sort of state of vulnerability that can occur post exercise while like and, and during the period when you're actually recovering so for example um 30 minutes within the 30 minutes post exercise there's an increased risk of sudden cardiac death for example it's very low risk it's thought to be due to like cardiac abnormalities um uh that people have structural cardiac abnormalities but it does happen uh it is very short window and that's when it occurs um but then that's counteracted by this sort of window of opportunity sort of like potential benefits. So for even folks with maybe some underlying heart disease, for example, in that case, or for people with underlying like concerns about their immune system function, in this case, you have that sort of maybe, you know, window of vulnerability, but then this window of opportunity comes afterwards um, where you can actually like see some benefit. So in this case, um, we don't actually have a window of vulnerability that is made up, and we have a window of opportunity with respect to actually improving the immune system's function. Um, this is like an idea about exercise immunotherapy. Um, so, for example, you can see an increased sort of targeting of certain either tumors or cancer cells via an acute bout of exercise. Yeah, that's super um, cool. Yeah, I know. I was like, wait, what? But it makes sense. I mean, even the American Cancer Society is re routinely recommending to folks to meet the physical activity guidelines. And even in the scientific consensus report on the physical activity guidelines, there's a substantial amount of research showing that uh, meeting the physical activity guidelines, which includes resistance training and aerobic training, decreases the risk of many different types of cancer. Like not only just developing it, but even if you had it, like survival from it and survival from complications from um, the treatment associated with it. So it's like d this makes sense, but it's cool that we kind of have now a mechanistic explanation for it rather than just saying like here are the clinical findings. So it's kind of cool to to see to see that uh, uh, kind of explained a little bit better. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a few other uh, kind of pieces of, of good news or interesting stuff to take away from this. Uh, some of which, I mean, so like with this, this prior set uh, thing we were just talking about, the idea of immune surveillance is something we were, you know, known about for a long time. I know we were taught about it in school and, and, and it, uh, it particularly as it pertains to um, going out and detecting, you know, early cancer cells and, and, you know, like we're all developing cancer all the time. And a lot of the time our immune system's taking care of it with some of these cool cells like natural killer cells and things like that. Um, but what we didn't necessarily know, or at least we didn't appreciate uh, uh, ourselves is that exercise itself can potentially stimulate more of this immune surveillance, which is a pretty cool finding. Similarly, there's uh, growing evidence of exercise actually enhancing the effectiveness of vaccines, immunizations, and, and immunization is obviously its own huge complex topic, but we can effectively uh, immunize people for a variety of infections. However, the way we do that, the specific composition of the vaccines, the way it's created, formulated, delivered, uh, there is variation between vaccines in how robust of an immune response they can generate, um, meaning that some vaccines, uh, they, they may not generate a super, super robust immune response or maybe not as long lasting of one. And perhaps you might need a booster, for example. People may be familiar with this. Um, and so there's, some, there's, there's growing evidence now that particularly for the vaccines that have relatively lower uh, uh, immunogenic kind of effects that actually exercising both an acute bout of exercise around the time of immunization, as well as being chronically, you know, uh, uh, a chronic exerciser, that those can actually improve uh, the effectiveness of vaccines, can raise antibody titers higher. And, and in some context, there's some conflicting evidence on this uh, with respect to like single bouts of exercise. It's more consistently positive for people who are regular exercisers. But most importantly is that there are precisely zero studies that show an impairment of the immune response to vaccination with exercise, meaning that if exercise was immunosuppressive, we would expect that in some of these trials that if somebody exercised around the time they get a vaccine, that they would have a weaker response to that vaccine or weaker immunity as a result. And no data show that. So that's a big, yeah. uh, a very cool uh, piece. And that's one, you know, like you mentioned earlier, not one that I had ever heard of before, but one that, you know, particularly for maybe an older population, if they're getting uh, uh, immunizations done, it probably is a good idea if they're not already exercising to get them to do some exercise around the time they get their, uh, get their immunization. Yeah, that's some stuff from uh, Dr. Woods at uh, University of Irvine. He's uh, basically showed that those who had been exercising chronically prior to receiving like the flu vaccine had a better vaccination response. Yeah. So cool. Cool. Yeah. So, so, so to be clear, and I know this is a shocker, we're uh, not recommending against exercise prior to any vaccination attempt. Um, <laughs> not, not in the barbell medicine yeah. um, uh, recommendations. The second part of this, and I, like, as far as like kind of uh, good things that come out of exercise related immuno uh, immunological changes is that, as I alluded to earlier, there are age-related declines in immune function. This is called immunosenescence. So effectively, your immune system doesn't work quite as well as you get older and older. Um, it's complex as to why that happens, but it's one thing we you know that we see over and over again. This is similar to like age-related loss in muscle mass. It's just like you know we see it. Doesn't mean there's nothing can be done. It's just that's that's what happens. So in one and you know on the one hand, if somebody wanted to counteract that or reduce the sort of effects from that, one thing they would do would be actually to just exercise, to meet the physical activity guidelines for adults, train. Um, similarly, like how would you prevent age-related muscle mass loss? You would train. How would you prevent age-related immunological function changes? You would train. 
Um, and, and again, we have this uh, sort of converging, all these converging lines of evidence that even though if an individual is in this sort of vulnerable population, let's say they have existing medical conditions, let's say they are at risk at, right now from like, you know, being infected and having a bad outcome with COVID-19, should they still exercise? Yes, because it's not likely to reduce their immune function to any significant degree. In fact, it's likely to do the opposite, actually improve their immune function, improve their potential immune response. And in addition to all of the other litany of benefits that come with physical exercise. So I don't know if I can stress that enough, but it's like, we would have you exercise. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, we get these kind of questions a lot and a lot of it comes down to people not necessarily recognizing the the cost benefit uh, trade-offs that are always at play when you make a decision. And so, you know, if, if we, somebody wanted to say, well, because of this pandemic now and I'm worried and I want to optimize my immune function, so I'm going to stop training. Uh, that's probably worsening <laughs> things. If anything, but being sedentary has a whole bunch of negative consequences. There's been tons of data. I, I wrote up a piece for a newsletter that'll be coming out or will have already come out by the time this is out about, you know, how acute decreases in daily step count, for example, there's tons of studies on this where people drop their step count from some routine, normal average uh, a daily steps, say somebody's doing five or 6,000 steps a day, and they drop it down to sub 1000, that within a couple of days, you start to see decreases in muscle mass, you start to see decreases in muscle strength, you start to see uh, worsening insulin sensitivity or increases in insulin resistance, uh, 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 body fat uh, uh, changes, all of which are things that are going to uh, worsen your uh, kind of general immune function uh, because uh, being insulin resistant, being diabetic, people have probably heard about how that is a risk factor with respect to, you know, the current uh, pandemic going around, but it's a risk factor in general for lots of infections. Having, having diabetes, for example, is uh, a severe case of insulin uh, resistance and it's, and it's thought to be relatively immunosuppressive compared to not being a diabetic. So there's Tons and tons and tons of reasons to train and, uh, uh, outside of, uh, you know, unstable medical or surgical scenarios, really, really, really few to not train. <laughs> yeah. And, and as we've said over and over and over again, <laughs> there's a dose dependent relationship with exercise volume and the potential to improve both performance and health outcomes in this case in particular, meaning that we want you to try to exercise too much. And I know we used to say that, like try to overtrain, say it tongue in cheek. But the reality of the situation is that most people are not active enough. Most people are not training enough. And I'm not talking about the young go-hards, you know, at the gym trying to get their squat up. I, I, I'm not talking about that they're not squatting enough, although th- they might probably aren't. <laughs> they're, they're probably not doing the recommended amount of aerobic training, for example. Um, and the individuals asking the question, like, should I train even though I'm at a, you know, I have these medical conditions or I think I'm at risk for COVID-19 or whatever, uh, should I start exercise? Yes. Yes. And, ex- and it, as, you know, as much as possible, get as much physical activity as possible um, because we see this dose-dependent relationship. Yes, we would want to adhere to this progressive overload principle. Yes, we have many different options, uh, free options for you even uh, to get started on your sort of training journey. But like, the take home is like, don't be worried about exercising too much. Be worried about exercising too little. That's that. Look, go back 15 seconds. Listen to that again. 
be worried about exercising too little. I think that's the, that, that piece applies to, you know, you could say it applies to 99% of the world's population. And of course the 1% who, uh, maybe it doesn't apply to are people who are most firmly in our audience and the people who, who, yeah. uh, you know, get, which is, which is okay. I mean, I had somebody who, who messaged me saying like, you know, uh, with respect to sarcopenia, they're like, you know, I worry about people uh, chasing numbers too much in the gym. Uh, it's, you know, you, to, to, to uh, be, be non-sarcopenic, you don't have to have a, a double bodyweight squat. And I'm like, look, man, like that is not where the energy is best put if we're going to, you know, actually have an impact here is I'm not yeah. super worried about people chasing numbers with respect to, you know, their, their degree of muscle mass as they get older. Um, just don't think it's a huge concern. Of course, like you said, we want to adhere to intelligent programming principles, uh, meaning you dose things based on initial tolerance and you aim to progress it from there. So that means that you don't take, you know, somebody who's done precisely nothing and then get them doing 300 minutes per week of high intensity interval training or something like that. Sure. Um, but yeah, we want to get, pe- we want to get everybody to meet those guidelines at a minimum. Um, and we have plenty of evidence to support our, our, uh, recommendations of, of getting that done and no, and very, very, very little, uh, arguably no strong evidence to suggest that by getting people who are not previously meeting those guidelines to meet those guidelines, that you are going to be at an increased risk of dying from COVID, uh, or no, almost anything else, (laughs) literally anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Except for having too much gains. No. Um, (laughs) yeah, we also have obviously a bunch of free resources. Uh, so the beginner prescription, the how to exercise at home article, all that. And then in addition to the other bunch of free, uh, programs on our website, like, look, it's all there. And I'm willing to accept the risk that the, you know, half a percent of folks are actually going to end up overtraining and be the first described, you know, overtraining syndrome case in all of resistance training. They're going to be the first ones. That's fine. Get, go for it. But I, I'm willing to accept that risk um, for the potential benefit of encouraging people to be more physically active. The last thing I want to say before we kind of wrap this up is that if you have an acute COVID-19 infection, or which can be, this can be extrapolated to if you have the flu, if you have a cold, whatever, any sort of infection, should you still be physically active? Answer, Yes we would still recommend that you meet the physical activity guideline minimums or exceed them. Um, the problem or the, the may, the caveat here would be that we would want you to quarantine, obviously, meaning that we don't increase the uh, public health risk of infection by going out and, you know, transferring your, uh, infection to other folks. So if you have COVID-19, we're all supposed to be quarantined anyway. This shouldn't be a big problem. If you have, the flu, you should not probably go train in a public commercial gym while you're symptomatic, even if the symptoms are mild. You should probably hold back on that and find ways to be ex- active at home. Cue at-home template plug once again. Uh, and then if you have a cold, which most people are like, I'll just go to work and I'll just go to the gym, you can make a case for not doing that if you're going to train in public because, you know, the guy, this 75-year-old guy who just randomly landed on the Barbell Medicine podcast on the iPod that he got during the holidays and he doesn't know how to turn it off, randomly listen to our <laughs> physical activity recommendations podcast. And now he's exercising for the first time and you accidentally put some respiratory droplets in the air and now he gets sick and he's got all these medical conditions. Maybe that, maybe that's a, a bad deal for him. So I think if you're actively sick, you probably should avoid training in public. But other than that, we would still recommend that you're physically active while you're sick. Yeah, I think it's okay to, it's totally okay to modify things potentially significantly if, if necessary, you know, this isn't to say you need to keep adding weight on your normal training program, et cetera. 
Um, but you know, I mean, I, I deal with the sickest of the sick in, in, you know, inpatient, uh, hospitalized patients critically ill, and I am desperately trying to get them up and active and moving as much as I can on a daily basis, uh, in the hospital. Cause I know that we have in very large body of evidence, uh, that, uh, it will improve their outcomes, improve their likelihood of being able to go home sooner and return to their normal life sooner versus being hospitalized or institutionalized longer and having more complications. And so, you know, even though, uh, this difference may not be as applicable to, to, you know, free living, you know, otherwise healthy people getting a pressure ulcer or something like that, there's still, you know, plenty of reason to, for benefit with respect to, um, continued physical activity, even during these times, um, you know, we, there's, uh, these immune stimulating effects among many, many, many others. Uh, so would recommend you, you try to stay active. Uh, in any case, you got anything else to add, Baraki? We done I, th- I think that uh, anybody who is interested in this topic uh, and who maybe has enough uh, prior education, um, like if you've been through a biology, immunology type uh, type uh, coursework, highly recommend reading this paper by Campbell and Turner and Frontiers from 2018. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, the- we're, we're happy to discuss. Yep, we'll put that in the description below, along with a couple other articles we found along the way. As always, thank you for tuning into the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. That was Dr. Austin Baraki. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, your host as always. Hey, wherever you're listening to this, go you know, right now, use your thumb, give us a five-star rating and review. really helps drive uh, traffic to our podcast, helps get us the word out about Barbell Medicine so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in the health and fitness communities. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.